Welcome back to the Management Lab. I'm Sean Hansen from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology. And I'm Ori Gall from the University of Sydney Business School. Hi, Sean. It's really unfortunate. Oh, hi, Ori. Sorry. It's really unfortunate that I, I, cons- I work at an institution where I consistently struggle. Anytime I have to say Rochester Institute of Technology, mm-hmm. it's just one of those phrases that I stumble over elements of it. Like when, when Google Glass was a thing, do you know what I'm talking about? Google Glass? Yeah. And I would teach in class like augmented reality. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to talk about this technology, but you could tell in the way I just said it that like my my lips and tongue just don't... I struggle to say it. And to say what? Google Glass? Google Glass. Um, I was going to ask, why don't you say in, instead of Rochester Institute of Technology, RIT? RIT. Well, that's a, that's what everyone calls it. So I could, I could, I just assume people don't know. People outside of the region might not know RIT, and so they might not know what RIT is a reference. Or to. even worse, they might think it's maybe affiliated with MIT, which is today. Yeah, that would be trash. Kind of a I'm not sure you want to be affiliated with MIT. <laughs> um, can I <laughs> can I say something else? Sure. I'm. I um um I stalked you online the other day. Oh God. Yeah, I went on um, ratemyprofessor.com. Oh, nice. I forget why. I, I think I may have googled your name for something else, and that was one of the um, the first entries. And I went in, and do you know what I saw? Have you ever seen that? Uh, yes, I've looked at it before. Wipe that smirk off your face. Don't be so pleased with yourself. <laughs> um. So if you go on Rate My Professor and look for Sean, what you find is a ridiculously high score from his students. So there's like 35 students or something that have rated you. On- they must have dumped some. I used to have more than that, which might have brought down my average. I don't know. if Maybe maybe brought up my average by them dumping some of the earlier ones. It's not like you're checking this every day, right? No, no, legitimately not. <laughs> but I've checked it before, right? They used to do yeah, that. So- <laughs> This this we will definitely want to edit out. But they used to do a chili. You said you were attractive. They could give you a chili pepper. And at one time, I had a chili pepper, and I lost the chili pepper. Which, believe me, Uri, before you say it, I am as surprised as anybody by that fact. But nevertheless, um, I had a chili pepper, and then they they got rid of it. And I just thought I lost mine, and I was like, this is bullshit. Uh, but it turns out that rate my professors actually dropped that feature of their system. Oh, thank God! Yeah, thank God. <laughs> um, I actually do remember you told me about this when it happened, though, right after it happened. And I think you were very upset that you got one, and I think it might have been Nick who got two or something. No, no, no. There was you could only you could either have it or not have it. And Nick and I both had checked it and both had it, and so we were all fired up. We were all excited. <laughs> well, that's nice. That's a, a, a you know a reassuring piece of um, a feedback from your students. Oh, feedback! Feedback! Look at that! Nice. Look at Nicely that! Nicely done. So today, dear listeners, we're talking about feedback, employee feedback, performance feedback, right? Performance feedback, which is a, a pervasive and probably a kind of a, a perennial feature of performance management in organizations it seems like we've always done that and it seems like we've always struggled with what is the best way to um, give feedback to employees so as to make sure that they get an honest assessment of their performance but in a way that doesn't actually 
discourage them if the feedback is not entirely positive. And so today we'll talk about some of the in and outs of how to um, manage our process of giving feedback to employees such that it's done properly um, and puts people in the right direction towards improved performance in the future. Is that a, a f- like a fair encapsulation of what we're talking about? I think it is a fair encapsulation, although I will note one thing that you said, uh, which is that it could disincentivize performance if it's not entirely positive. And that is sort of my inclination. My Before reading some of this literature, my inclination too is that negative feedback tends to... Um, you know, maybe dampen performance or disincentivize good performance. I mean, it's necessary. Certainly there are times when managers have to give corrective feedback, you know, have to go to employees and say, look, we got to change this. You know, the the outcomes are not what we need or the performance is not what we need. But as you noted, I think my general assumption is that that tends to be the problematic form. One of the things I think we're going to see in this discussion is that that's not necessarily the case is that there's some evidence that people actually prefer negative feedback to positive feedback in depending on context. Yeah. So we've read um, some of the main research on the topic in preparation for today. And I think it's fair to say that there were a couple of things that we were both surprised to see there in terms of the results, uh, which we'll talk about. So kind of maybe to give a, a general framework for the conversation, we'll talk about various factors that impact on how, positive an experience, let's say, given somebody feedback can be. So it has to do with, you know, who gives the feedback, what sort of position they have or type of authority that they have within the organization, um, what feedback we give, you know, what is the content of the feedback that we provide to employees and how we structure it, when we give the feedback, um, is it right after the performance, um, how frequently do we give the feedback to the person that plays a role in, as well. And also we'll talk about some of the individual differences in terms of who's receiving the feedback and their, I guess, psychological makeup and how that can impact on, on the delivery and the impact of the, of the feedback. So all these play different types of roles in how effective this process can be. Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and quickly define the term, what constitutes performance feedback? So I'm just going to, I'm going to go with one definition that comes from uh, the, the piece, which is a, a meta-analysis by Johnson, Johnson, and Dave in the Journal of Organizational Behavior Management, um, which, which defines performance feedback as the provision of information specifically given to change or maintain performance. Yeah. I have another definition that's very similar, but just kind of to flesh it out a bit more. Yes. Flesh it, it is <laughs> information about performance that not only enlightens on past behavior, but may also set the occasion to change future behavior, right? So it yeah, doesn't only shine a light on what's been done before, but it can also inform how to go about performing in the, or behaving in the future. Yeah, so these these two definitions are certainly not contradictory. They They very much are aligned with one another. Maybe we could start with the discussion of sort of who is providing feedback. Yeah, the source of the feedback. So one major factor that plays a role in terms of the source of the feedback is their level of credibility, right? So irrespective of the content of the feedback, negative or positive, or the timing of the feedback or anything else, 
the more credible the source of the feedback is, um, the stronger the positive impact of the feedback is on job satisfaction, right? Even if the feedback is negative. So as long right. as the source, the giver of the feedback is considered or perceived as a credible source, a credible person, it's likely to have a, a positive impact on job satisfaction. It can also increase motivation for performance improvement and also feedback seeking behavior in the future on the part of the employee. Yeah. So their openness to continued feedback, or I guess feedback seeking is more than openness. It's actually the solicitation of additional feedback. Yeah. So it's proactive behavior, which yeah. is important. Yeah. And this, um, this question of credibility actually is interesting to me because it can take so many different forms, right? Like credibility on one level, it could be what you would call legitimate power or legitimate authority. You know, if it's coming from one's boss, that could conceivably in and of itself by the person's position grant a certain to that particular voice, as opposed to something like expert power. If it's a person providing feedback who is recognized by the receiver of the feedback as an expert within the domain, um, that's a different source of credibility, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so expert power, as it's described in the literature, has a different kind of effect on feedback. So um, the more expertise the person that's given the feedback is perceived to have, um, the more positively the feedback is related to performance improvements in the case of negative feedback, right? So if you're given critical feedback about your performance, you're going to respond more positively to it if the person given that negative feedback if you perceive that person to be an expert, like they actually know yes. what they're talking about. Right. Which makes sense, right? As opposed to something like just legitimate or hierarchical authority. Like your boss could give you the feedback and it could be negative feedback. But if you yeah. don't think your boss actually knows that much in the domain uh, to which she or he is uh, referring, then uh, then it, it could undermine uh, the receptiveness. Yeah, so that can have like an inter interesting implication in in concrete settings. Like, so if you're uh, a boss of some people and you're giving them negative feedback, and you're not necessarily an expert in the domain within which the feedback is given, do you want to bring in somebody else who's considered to be an expert in the domain to give that feedback to the individual in question? Yeah, I'm inclined to say yes. I, I, I'm thinking back to an early professional experience of my own, very early in my career, my consulting career. I had my boss give me some feedback. And one of the points was that he felt I needed to improve my technical skills. This was in, in a particular arrangement where, you know, I trusted my own technical skills more than I would uh, that person. So it was a, a, overall a great manager, but not on that axis, right? Yeah. And so that particular comment at the time, I remember <laughs> 30 years later, whatever it is, thinking, you know, why should I, why should I accept your assessment of my technical skills? Mm -hmm. So I guess that there's sort of a, like a, there's an interim conclusion that we can draw here is that in, in the event of giving somebody negative feedback, um, which you know, that's inevitable. It's going to happen, right? People sometimes perform well and some, sometimes they don't. And even in in the current climate where um, 
I actually remember when I was a PhD, that actually goes back like 20 years ago, but I feel like this trend has only become worse since. Um, and I'm not sure if I've told you this story before as a, as a PhD student at Case in Cleveland. My first year in the OB department, the organizational behavior department, I, I submitted a, an essay in one of the courses and I got an A. And I was very happy, like, an A, that's a good grade, right? Yeah. And then I compared with my classmates and that was the lowest cl- uh, lowest grade given. Everybody else was given an A plus or A plus plus. Um. <laughs> now, this is actually quite interesting. And so you, you were upset is what you're saying. Sorry. I, I felt like, I think I can take the feedback. Just give me a C or whatever. Don't give me A and everybody else A plus plus and A plus doesn't. That, A plus that plus. Sound. What was this like kindergarten? Like who gives multiple pluses <laughs> well, at a university I mean, level? But what was this, this statistic that came out just a week or two ago by Harvard? Is what, what 74% of students get an A? Yeah, Is we can talk about that. Something in that in that area. An issue for a long time. So, um, uh, one of the professors, um, shoot, I gotta Google his name. Harvey, Harvey Mansfield. So there was a, a professor, Harvey Mansfield, who I believe was at the, um, the the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and even back in the the early '90s or mid '90s when I was attending, um, they. Uh, he was calling on the university to post its its statistics with regard to grades delivered, because even at that point there was a significant grade inflation dynamic yeah. where you know average grades had gone from I guess probably a C in the 1970s to what was basically an A minus in the mid 90s, and now I, I think it's if there's room to move, it's gotten even more significant. Yeah. And the folks at the Harvard is, Crimson, that's the student-run newspaper, every time this gets reported, they say, well, you know, it's because we're so great. Yeah, of sure course. It is. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's a problem both because from a like an institutional perspective, you can't you can't really distinguish between brilliant people and just average people and people who don't perform well at all, because everybody's clustered together in, in into a very small band, a narrow band. And also, if people don't get an honest feedback about who they are and what they can do, it's going to come back later in life and bite them in the ass in one way or another, right? Sure. So I don't well, think we're doing anybody any favors by giving them unrealistic unrealistic feedback. Right. And and a core question is, what is the point of feedback, right? The point of feedback as as systems people, right? In general systems theory, we know that feedback is how systems learn, right? Any mm-hmm. system. Right, it could be a natural ecosystem, and feedback is how, uh, with disruption, and whatnot, but how it achieves stability. And so, systems learn through feedback, whether that's a, a human being. <laughs> Each of us is is a little self contained system that sits within others. But if you don't provide accurate and regular feedback, then a system doesn't learn. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think you're right. You know, the 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 failure to provide accurate and consistent feedback means that that it undermines the core objective of learning. That's that's certainly specific in a university context, but in an organizational context, I mean, you name it. How how do we learn to perform better at whatever it is we're trying to do? In the absence of feedback, we don't. And and learning is a precursor to, um, well, maybe not precursor, but it's a uh, intimately intertwined with. The ability of any system to flourish in its environment. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Right. Because if you don't learn, you can't adapt. And if you can't adapt, you stay behind. And if you stay behind, you might exist. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, Not not necessarily physically, but certainly metaphorically or figuratively. Right. And you're not going to flourish and achieve your full potential if you can't adapt and change and respond to requirements from the environment. So if anyone thinks that they're doing their students or the employees any favors by sparing them bad news or the harsh reality of where they are now, it's it's a silly illusion that they need to dissuade themselves of. Yeah, there was a story a couple of years ago that I encountered about a woman who had, this is like back from my psychology study, they, uh, so much of what we know about the functions of the different parts of the brain are based on what are called lesion studies, meaning where there's damage to some part of the brain, we figure out what that function does by seeing how the people who have damage to that part of the brain behave differently than people who don't, right? Mm-hmm. And she had some some sort of a damage to the part of her brain that controls fear, which to be honest, I don't remember what that is. It might be the amygdala or something like that. Um, but she, uh, it was, I think that was it. It was something like she had a calcified amygdala. And so she did not experience fear. And I remember when I first heard this story, I thought, oh, God, that would be nice. And then upon further reflection, I thought, what a dangerous existence, right? Like fear is a feedback, is, is a way in which your brain is giving you feedback that you might be in a situation that you should get yourself out of. Um, and if you simply don't have that experience, you could put yourself in life-threatening uh, settings uh, with some regularity. Yeah. And I mean, it goes back to the conversation we had before about the current climate when we talked about um, the hearings mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. um, university presidents and the whole notion of um, equality and, and diversity and inclusion, which are in themselves, I think, when you isolate them individually and inspect them carefully, the all three of them are important principles. Absolutely. I think they're... They've somehow extract. I mean, people have extrapolated from them all sorts of policies and, and theories about how we need to protect people from uncomfortable situations because it might hurt them and it might constitute aggression against them. But again, I think that in order to flourish and succeed in life, you have to be able to cope with difficult information and feedback coming at you. I mean, that's how you grow. You grow right, out right. of uncomfortable situations. And if you never face stress or difficulties, Discomfort. Discomfort. You're not going to be able to grow and develop and flourish as a, as a person. And that's not to say that you have to be brutal in the way you deliver you know, critical feedback. That's certainly not the, the conclusion of what we're saying here, but we can't shy away from doing that. That's not the answer either. Sure. Yeah. Well, and um, I think I just wanted to add one little note to that, which is we've used the phrase positive and negative feedback quite a bit. And I think maybe it's worth just quickly defining those terms because negative feedback doesn't just mean someone who's, you know, overly critical or explicitly critical, or um, maybe it is explicitly, but basically positive feedback means feedback that is intended to to reinforce or continue certain behaviors, whereas negative feedback is feedback intended to interrupt or reduce other behaviors, Right. right. So anything in which you think there is a change, a corrective action that's needed, mm-hmm. the feedback associated with that would be called negative feedback. 
Okay, so let's talk about, uh, we, we've talked about the source of the feedback, right? And we've emphasized the importance of the credibility and the expertise of the source, specifically when given negative or critical feedback, right? These are situations in which expertise and credibility are extremely important to make sure that people receive will receive positively um, the negative feedback. Another dimension that we, I think, should talk about is the timing of the feedback. So before I read the literature, it seems like there's, um, at least I had a, this intuitive, I guess, assumption that the more frequently a person is given feedback or the more, cl the more closely the feedback is given to the actual performance, the better. Right. Immediacy. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I had the exact same thought, like, and again, I'm sort of going back to my early uh, training in psychology where, you know, in, in behavioral psychology, um, the premise is that you, that feedback has to be immediate upon behavior. If there's bad behavior or good behavior, either the positive or the negative feedback has to be immediate so that that in, in a lot of those cases, animal, uh, but even human beings, uh, I guess we are animals, right? Um, but so that the the individual involved associates the feedback with the behavior that just happened, that just occurred. And so I thought exactly the same thing, that obviously immediate feedback would be superior to delayed feedback. And it turns out that that's a much murkier picture than, mm. than I had assumed. So was there anything that you read there that surprised you? Yeah, so the, I, I think... a. a a number of these statements suggest that delayed feedback is actually more effective in terms of performance improvement mm -hmm. than immediate feedback. Mm -hmm. And after I have sort of mulled that over, I think I can see the mechanism at play there, which is, you know, immediate feedback with regard to certain actions can easily be forgotten unless that, unless you're doing some repetitive task, right? If you're doing some repetitive task, you're shooting uh, free throws, you get immediate feedback if it goes in or doesn't, right? And that's tied to the behavior you engaged in when you were doing that action. And so if it's repetitive, I think the immediacy is valuable. But it turns out for a lot of things that we encounter in a professional environment, the next time you're going to do that action, whatever it is, might not be right away. You know, it might be a couple of days later, it might be weeks later. Mm -hmm. And if the feedback comes immediately upon performance of the original task, it could be long forgotten by the time that the next your next opportunity to engage in that task arises. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that actually positioning the feedback closer to that next opportunity right before the next task is much more efficacious than immediately upon completion of the initial task. Yeah, that's interesting. Another another aspect or mechanism that might be a play there is the the level of complexity of the task performed. So mm -hmm. when the task that we are performing is not a simplistic, repetitive, manual kind of task, but actually involves some thinking and analyzing and um, reflection, perhaps, if we're given immediate feedback, we don't get a chance to think about what we've done and all the things that might have gone wrong or not properly aligned so as not to allow us to get the most positive or, or optimal outcome out of that task. And if we're actually given some time to think about this and ponder and reflect and think about different, you know, alternative ways of performing that task, then after we've had a chance to do that, the feedback might become much more effective. 
So again, in those circumstances, immediate feedback is actually not as effective as delayed feedback, which goes against the, you know, the the intuition that many people I think have about this. Yeah, certainly that I had. Now the second the second point that you alluded to with regard to sort of you know, the 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 rhythm of the delivery of feedback was much more consistent with what I expected, which is about frequency. That more frequent feedback is much more effective than infrequent. <laughs> um, and and this is particularly striking to me because I think most organizations, certainly the organizations I've operated in, the most substantive feedback is given once a year, yeah. right? You have an annual evaluation. That is not frequent, right? That is infrequent feedback. And so I think the point is, is that, you know, annual evaluations, I think when you look at the research literature, come out as a terrible way of going about delivering feedback to employees within organizations. Yeah. It's it's very delayed, but it is so infrequent that it becomes very hard for the individuals to think about how it impacts their day-to-day actions. Or tease out the specific relationships between the feedback and what they actually do or did mm-hmm. possibly 11 months ago. <laughs> right, right. And it actually made me think that there, there might be two different things at play there. So one is the thing we just talked about, which is the the substantive content and how it relates to what I actually do and you know how tenuous that link that link becomes if it's given six months or ten months after the fact. But also I was thinking about the Hawthorne effect, mm-hmm. um, which might be a play here. And by that I mean so the the Hawthorne studies were done, I want to say 1920s, 30s. Uh, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. So the, the, it's it's a very famous um, experiment that pretty much everybody who everybody who studies psychology reads it or about it, and it's this study where they looked at employees at an electricity company, I think in Chicago, and they wanted to test the impact of the level of illumination in the in the workshops that they were working on their productivity. Yeah. So if we if we gave more light, does it improve productivity? It was Western Electric. It was the Hawthorne Western Electric plant in Cicero, Illinois. Cicero is right outside Chicago, so you're pretty. pretty I wasn't close. far off. No. And pretty so there were there were many different variations to the experiment. They manipulated the different variables, but the bottom line is that regardless of what they did with the level of illumination, people's productivity levels it went up. And the conclusion that they drew from that is that it had nothing to do with the lighting in the rooms. It had to do with the, you know, people felt like they were actually being given attention, like anybody actually cared about what they did. Yeah. Um, which made them more productive. So I think there's some of that that might be a play when we give employees feedback more frequently. People actually feel like we care about what they do. You frame that very positively. I think there is an alternative explanation, which is people know they're being watched, right? So you have sort of the, to take another concept from uh, philosophy and social science, you have sort of a panopticon effect. Panopticon is this idea for a prison that was first proposed by Jeremy Bentham. And he said a perfect prison design would be one in which it's a circular prison and the guard stand is in the middle. And you basically the guard stand has a view into all the cells. And the inmates never know if there's a person inside that guard stand, but they know that they always could be observed. Mm -hmm. They're always subject to observation and therefore they will behave better 
but that's a that's another way of thinking about it, right? Is the Hawthorne effect might be that if people know they're being watched, they're going to perform better. And so anytime there was a manipulation in the environment at the Hawthorne plant, they felt, okay, somebody's paying attention to what we're doing. I better do my job really well. Yeah, look, that's an empirical question that, that could be tested, I'm sure. But it, it's very likely that both of these effects happen at the same time. Sure. But I would, I would, I think, make the argument that if it were solely the um, panopticon effect, then productivity would drop subsequently after a while. Because I don't think that ongoing surveillance actually have has a, a, a lasting impact on increased productivity. I would suspect that that would be a, you know, that would wane over time. That is a good empirical question. I think we should queue it up for a subsequent discussion because I imagine there's research already that that tries to disentangle those. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I realize I jumped forward a little bit in our discussion by jumping to the when piece and. There's one more aspect of the what piece with regard to types of feedback that I think we should touch on, which is the combination or non-combination of positive and negative feedback. And this was another area where I was really surprised by the research. Yeah. Because there's, there's some arguments that have been made that says basically you should couch negative feedback within positive feedback. And this is in the literature, it's called a, um, a feedback sandwich. I have had a student refer to it as a, as a criticism sandwich, or another as a shit sandwich. But I think he's confu- mixing metaphors in that particular case. Um, but the idea is, you know, you give a little bit of positive feedback, and then you have the bitter pill, where you criticize. You know, you offer the negative feedback, and then you close it up with some positive again. Which sounds like a reasonable approach, right? This is what I do in in. <laughs> I, I fully admit this is what I do in almost all of my feedback to students. Mm-hmm. When I'm reviewing deliverables, I will say something nice, and then I tell them what needs to change, mm-hmm. and then I close with something nice or complimentary. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely do that feedback sandwich. And the 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 research seems to suggest that the research sandwich doesn't do much good. That if there is something negative to communicate, mixing it with positive feedback will often dilute the message and not people get not enable people to get that um that corrective element in the middle so people would be thrown off or get confused uh, i don't know if it's conf- well maybe yeah maybe it is confused but it's basically like they 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 hear the compliments they hear the criticisms but you know the the criticisms in terms of you should change this get lost by being sandwiched between the positive elements and I, I was very surprised by that. Um, I mean, it has certainly made me reflect <laughs> on the kind of feedback I'm going to give. I just, to me, it's always one of these things where I'm trying to be nice. Like I want to tell the students, look, I appreciate your effort. You got to raise your game on certain things, but I still appreciate your effort, right? Um, and and that has been the approach I've always taken. And now I'm really second guessing it. Well, I think I think there's a perhaps a more subtle way of looking at this, which is that oftentimes when you give feedback to somebody, you want to say both. You want to highlight some of the positive things that they've done, but you also want to make sure that they understand that some things there's room for improvement on. And I think there's a way of of you know mixing both of these messages together. But I guess we just need to make sure as people give give feedback to others that the underlying message remains very clear and that people don't get kind of 
well, I'm just going to use the word confused by by the mixed message because mm-hmm. you know reality is complicated. It's very likely, I would say, that perhaps in most cases, people do both things that are great and things that are not so great. And I mean, if we want to give realistic f- feedback to people, like we said before, I think it's important to touch on all of these points. But maybe it's just a matter of how we tailor and construct the narrative and the message. And we need we need to make sure that even when we, we incorporate these varying types of feedback, the overall message doesn't get diluted or or lost. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I, I, I will not turn in my own behavior to simply, you know, saying, oh, I'm not going to say anything positive because I want you to get the critical message. But it, it will probably make me more inclined to give the critical message, but think about how I frame it. Where I, I do think, I think the emotions can dramatically complicate the delivery and receipt of feedback. So if feedback is delivered in such a way as to make people feel defensive, or again, fear, fear for their jobs, fear for their um, you know, position or role or role on a team or whatever, then I think it, I think it can be counterproductive, right? We want them to understand that certain things should be done in different ways, but in a way, this is my perception, at least, and again, uh, having looked through the literature, um, in a way that doesn't engender so much emotion that it might inhibit their their next step, right? Their ability to take action going forward. Yeah. So this is another area where I was surprised by the literature because that was my gut, my intuition when I got into the literature. But then one of the the findings that came out of it is that participants or employees actually prefer not not negative per se feedback, but corrective feedback, right? So they, they prefer to be told what they've actually done wrong and how to perform better over just being given positive feedback that might not necessarily be very instructive. Mm-hmm. So research actually demonstrates that the former, meaning corrective feedback, leads to improved um, citizenship behavior, right? And citizen, organizational citizenship behavior is basically when people act in good faith within the organization, right? They do things that they don't necessarily have to, but that they believe will improve the life of everybody else around them, right? Yeah. So so this comes from the Tagliabue et al. paper that we looked at in European Journal of Work and Organizational Psychology. Yeah, yeah I was surprised by that as well. I, I do wonder on this one if there's a bit of a cultural valence there mm-hmm. where, um, so for example, I have the good fortune of teaching uh, students from different cultural contexts. And uh, I, every year I teach a group of German students and also a, a group of Chinese students. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I have the mostly domestic students that I teach within the United States. <laughs> and I think the openness to negative feedback is markedly different across the three groups. Well, uh, across one is different. I think the Germans and the Chinese students tend to welcome corrective feedback. The American students don't want any corrective feedback. Really? In my experience, they want to be, uh, this is of course an overgeneralization. This will vary from individual to individual, but in general, they don't like hearing what they did wrong. Well, there's also a generational thing, right? So these are mostly Gen Zers, right? That we're talking about here. Well, but that's true across the board with regard to the people I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was something else about giving negative feedback, um, and and you you mentioned before the importance of negative emotions and how we 
oftentimes give feedback or construct it in a way so as to avoid provoking negative emotions on the on the recipient side, which makes sense. But um, at least one of the studies that we looked at, and I guess that makes sense as well, showed that negative feedback can lead to fewer negative emotions when it is informative rather than confirmatory. Yeah, meaning it's telling them something they didn't already know. Yes. Confirmatory is telling you something you already know, right? Informative is it's telling you something you did not already know. Yeah, and I think the reason why this leads probably to less negative emotions is because not only does it tell you something that you didn't already know, but it also gives you cues and ideas as to how to improve upon what you've done before so as to perform better in the future. Because if you don't have, and again, it goes back to the same stuff we talked about before. If you're not given information as critical as it may be about how to, what you've done not optimally and how you might improve on it, there's no way you're going to develop as an individual. And I think this goes to the same point, right? When we give people information about um, the things that they've done and how they can improve them, that that is actually extremely helpful and valuable for these people to grow and develop and improve. I do worry that fear can play or or negative emotion can play a role in terms of people's receptiveness. One of the areas that I do study in is in agile development teams and and how they structure their environments. And one of the key insights that emerges is that feedback is is built into the environment. Like they're building in consistent, frequent, it is immediate, in that case, feedback into the environment. But by having tools that basically enable them to quickly realize if something hasn't worked, it eliminates the fear. It eliminates negative emotions within the team dynamics because, you know, they try something, it doesn't work, or they, you know, they put a piece, you know, a bit of code into the code base and it breaks the code, um, it breaks the build. Uh, maybe I'm getting too technical in the language, but it basically makes the, the, the broader code cease to work. They know right away and they, they don't worry about it. They know they, they got to go back and fix it. And it basically gets rid of this fear that you have something lurking out there. And so I think that element of frequency and regularity and, uh, and consistency, I think plays a big role in reducing the negative emotions that come along with it. I think a lot of the negative emotions that um, might exist in this context have to do with organizational culture. And I mean, this, I don't think the research we read for today explicitly touched on this, but it does um, a lot of other research that demonstrates the importance of culture and how, how much emphasis is being put on, on allowing experimental um, conduct within the organization, how, how well tolerated mistakes are and tolerance of failure. Yeah, and and the degree of of appreciation of how important making mistakes is, because we learn from mistakes, and mistakes are not punished, but rather they're celebrated as opportunities for learning. And I think in organizations that that have that espouse and actually demonstrate practically these principles, these ideas of you know being an open culture, being a culture that that gives people opportunities to learn, and and to experiment and try new things, and and praise them when they even if they fail, um, these are uh, the. I, I believe these are organizations where this fear is not as prominent mm-hmm. when negative or corrective feedback is given. Yeah, I think that's quite right. So let's move. There's one that we had not had a note on, but I would like to touch on it if it's okay with you, which is how. 
feedback mm-hmm. is given. And this one seems pretty clear, which is the old face-to-face gold standard still persists. Yeah. That in most cases, sort of remote feedback or email-based feedback or things like that are just not as effective as face-to-face delivery of feedback. Yeah, and I feel like this is a <clears throat> this is a point that that may seem, you know, trivial or obvious, but we need we need to keep in mind that, and we we had an episode on on people analytics a few mm-hmm. episodes ago, right, which relies on the use of various types of algorithmic technologies to monitor and manage the performance of of, of employees and organizations, and many of these systems that we talked about contain features that provide employees feedback automatically and electronically without necessarily the direct intervention of any human being. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about companies like um, Uber Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. as a prime example of a business that's almost entirely and exclusively managed through the use of, of algorithms and where drivers barely or if at all, have any direct relationship or interactions with other human beings who manage them. This is not a conducive environment for the development of your workforce. Yeah, well, it's not effect. It doesn't engender effective feedback for sure. Yeah, I've read some research actually recently, which I, I don't have at my fingertips, so I can't point to, but that talks about this very thing in gig economy um, domain. So Uber being a gig economy uh, environment. Upwork, I mean, Turk, yeah. uh, any Upwork, of these platforms. Airbnb, like whatever. Yeah. And all of those often have algorithmically generated feedback and the perceptions of fairness and uh, and concerns about accuracy are dramatically higher in those environments. Yes. So, and if, if anybody thinks that these are unique kind of exceptional cases, there might still be today, but the speed with which organizations are adopting various types of HR analytics or people analytics systems is staggering. And I think, unfortunately, I think we're going to see more and more of these, of this algorithmically mediated feedback processes happening in organizations to the, I would say to the detriment, both of individual employees, because they're not getting the, um, you know, feedback at sufficient quality or transparency or perceptions of fairness, but also to the organizations themselves. I think they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot there. Yeah. I think it could have very negative ramifications for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, it's kind of funny, but that we kind of have to state the obvious that having a face-to-face conversation with another human being is good. You know, it's yeah, definitely preferable to- And effective. To, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And definitely preferable to- um getting an email or a text message. Yeah. Which again, I think actually says something about a lot of our performance evaluation uh, activities that happen in organizations. You know, people get the annual review. Sometimes they have a conversation with their manager, but in a lot of contexts, they don't. They get sort of the document and they're supposed to read through the bullet points in the document or something like that. It's not going to be as effective as a mode of feedback as having a conversation with another person. Yeah. Maybe the last thing we want to touch on in terms of the dimensions of feedback that are that seem to be influential is who is given the feedback? Or in other words, um, are there individual differences between 
amongst feedback recipients that might impact on how the feedback process is is handled and its right. efficacy. And some of the research we saw does point at some significant and interesting differences between individuals and how we might want to structure the feedback process based on these differences. Anything that jumped jumped out to you in this regard? Yeah, one of the things that was really interesting is the um, uh, comparative feedback. So like feedback from peers oh, yeah. uh, was more significant for high performers or comparison to peers was a more significant motivator for high performers than for low performers within an organization, yeah. which I was going to bring up earlier. Cause like you said, you were happy with your a until you saw what everyone else got. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's fair to say you're, uh, you were, a, have been a high performing, uh, scholar in your, uh, in your life. Um, and I think that's, that's, what's playing out there, right? Like you, you, you were happy with it until you realized that you know, you were the low guy uh, relative to everyone else and getting feedback with regard to how you could raise your relative performance might have been more efficacious. Huh, so I read this a bit differently. So I, I, what I read was that research said that we, as managers or people who give feedback, we want to give um, normative comparative feedback to high performers. Now, to, I understood that to mean people who performed well, right? Rather than right. an individual trait, like being competitive or driven or something like that, which I think is what you're saying. Or am, am I misinterpreting what you're saying? Well, I, no, I think people who perform well tend to respond better to the comparative feedback, right? In terms of like what are the what are the thresholds that others are achieving, whereas low performers tend to respond better to objective feedback, like yeah. do this, not mm -hmm. that. You know, uh, you achieved this level, uh, you know, you you hit an 80, I want you to get to an 85, um, right. whatever, you know. So where it's low performers tend to just want their targets, whereas high performers want a sense of the comparative performance. Right. So with low performers, they, they respond better to feedback that doesn't necessarily place them on a scale in relation to everybody else. Right, right. But just says... Here are the specific things I would like to see you do differently. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, another another point that I thought was interesting, and I actually it was counterintuitive to me, uh, was the difference between people who are high versus low in self-efficacy, right? And self-efficacy mm -hmm. is basically the belief that you're capable of performing something um, in a capable way, and um, their response to um, negative feedback. So I assume that people who are high in self-efficacy would respond better to negative feedback because their their self-efficacy is high and they they're going to get over it more more easily and and you know actually make sense of it in a productive way but it's actually the opposite. So individuals that are high in self-efficacy based on this research show less acceptance of negative feedback compared to people who are low in self-efficacy. Does that make sense to yeah. you? Yeah. How do you? What? Yeah. Well, what do you? What do you make of that? I think it might be a, a case of where the feedback contradicts this individual's view of themselves. Hmm. So they have these view of themselves as people who are high performers, super um, capable. Yeah, they get things done, and then you're throwing mm -hmm. this in their face, and it's like, well, that's not me. That doesn't make yeah. sense at all. Interesting. Did you have a different? interpretation of this or I also found it surprising but I did I did not have a, a hypothesis as to why that would emerge yeah 
Yeah, I think that's, yours is compelling to me, though. Yeah, I think that's probably what's happening there. Yeah, nice. So, what do you think? What are our takeaways? Takeaways. So, to recap, um, things that I would emphasize here in terms of so, don't sugarcoat feedback that you're giving to people. I think the underlying message here is people need to hear the full scope and honest opinion about their performance, positive and negative. When you do deliver this sort of feedback, I think we both agree that we want to make sure that we we are realistic about this, but at the same time have a very clear narrative that points people in a certain direction so that they know exactly where they are and what they need to do in order to improve. When we give negative feedback, we talked about the importance of um, the credibility and the expertise of the person who's given the feedback, right? So it shouldn't just come from anybody random, like an HR person who might not mm -hmm, have domain-specific mm -hmm. expertise, but somebody with actual expertise in the domain within which the feedback is given. That's extremely important. Can I interject something? On, on the earlier one on the sugar coating, I, I think maybe we could debate that a little bit. Because I, I still think you need to sugarcoat a little bit, meaning I, I agree with you that you don't want to mix feedback. Like if you need, if corrective action is needed, make sure you're communicating that corrective action. I still feel, and I'm not sure that I can point to specific elements in the literature to support myself here. So I, I might be, uh, you know, uh, operating without a net on this. Um, but I still think the way in which corrective action is framed matters. And that to me is a bit of sugarcoating, right? Like I think, uh, again, going back to operative conditioning from the, you know, BF Skinner and early psychologists, I don't think you want electric shock here, right? Like I, I think uh, providing feedback in a way that engenders discomfort or emotional response from an employee, I think is problematic. You can give corrective action and suggest the need for a change in course in a way that doesn't yeah, stir up an emotional response. So maybe it depends on what we mean by sugar coating. Yeah, I think, and I can't help but think that there's a cultural difference here at play as well. Um, that's becoming evident as we as we're talking. Um, so we both had, I think, the same Finnish PhD supervisor, right, when we were students, and. Uh, it was so funny to me because we were in the U.S., but the Finnish culture is so radically different to the U.S. in terms of how, well, pretty much everything, I guess. And whenever I asked him, Kale, how are you doing today? He would say, fine. And fine is, you know, that's good for a Finn. Right, right. When I say fine, you're like, what's wrong? Yeah, what's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and so I think the, you know, the anchoring point, the the baseline is very different across cultures. Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, so maybe you know that's something that as as a manager you need to be you need to be aware of you know, who you're speaking with and what what kind of cultural expectations or or baseline they have. But I, I think we're in agreement that you know we should still be as honest as we can in in the delivery of the feedback and make sure that we we hit all the important points so that people actually have a chance to improve. Because if we don't. If you don't give them this information, how are they going to improve? Yeah, don't jumble the message. Yes, or obscure things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you're concerned that somebody might get hurt. But the way we structure the feedback needs to be done in in such a way that doesn't 
cause a person to recoil and run away from the feedback, but it actually spurs them into corrective and productive action. And I think the way we do this is kind of a case-by-case basis, depending on who we're speaking with. Right. Yeah. So I have a couple additional points that I would just add. One is frequency. I think we as organizational, as organizations, as leaders, as managers need to devise mechanisms for greater frequency of feedback, right? And I I know they exist in some environments. I'm not acting like there's no solutions here. Um, But I think the annual review is the primary mechanism of feedback in an organization is a, is a broken mechanism. Yeah. Um, because the frequency is just not great enough to actually create changes in behavior and get back to face to face, make sure you were defaulting to face to face. It's hard, right? Like I, I know some of my students, when we start talking about things like systems analysis and design, and I tell them that they actually have to go and talk to people. Sometimes there's discomfort, like, you know, the whole joke about how Gen Z always wants to text and no one wants to call on the phone anymore. But I mean, there's a real power to -to face-to-face communication and we got to get back to that certainly with regard to something like performance feedback. Yeah, I, I agree. And as I'm agreeing with you, I'm, I'm also thinking about the generational differences because I think there's something to it as well. Yeah. When I say don't text, my kids would surely be like, no, no, please text. (laughs) (laughs) Which brings up another point for me. I think in order to give effective feedback face-to-face, you have to have certain qualities as not just as a leader or a manager, but as a person, mm-hmm. right? Because you, you need to be able to handle the situation with a sufficient level of honesty and compassion. And it's not easy to do that. Not Certainly not everybody can do that. And even if you're a great strategic thinker or you have a you know an amazing analytical mi- analytic mind that can crunch numbers and find patterns or whatnot, to be able to do that with people is is a very different skill, and not many people have that. And perhaps that's part of the reason why we're seeing this trend away from face to face meetings or feedback to um to other other modalities, uh, apart mm-hmm. from the you know the technology being available. Yeah. We got some good insights. Yeah. Okay. So we are going to test out a new segment because we decided that our favorite things might be running dry. So we're going to test out a new segment called What Went Down Today, in which each of us finds some historical trivia from this day in history and see if the other one knows what happened. So I have one for you. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. So today is the 18th of December, 2023, of course. And um, so what happened on this day in 1865 in the United States? 1865, December 18th. Okay. So 1865, we're out of the war. That is to say the Civil War. Mm-hmm. In December, mm-hmm. I think April of 1865 was the end of the war. So I'm going to say the beginning of Reconstruction. Um, you're getting warm. 
you're in the vicinity. Uh, Andrew Johnson passed a lot. I don't know. So it, I don't know. I'll give you a hint. It has to do okay. with it has to do with slavery. Okay, so Reconstruction also had to do with slavery, of course, rebuilding in the South. Um, okay, so slavery had already been abolished at that point in the United States. Oh, is it the passage of the 13th Amendment? There you go. Nice. All right, I'll yeah. take it. The 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution officially abolishing slavery. That was the day in which it was, in which it was ratified, the 18th of December, 1865. That's okay, funny. so I needed a little bit of I needed a little prodding, but I got there. But not much. That's impressive. <laughs> you know your history. I am a history buff. Um, do you want I can give you another one? What happened on this day in 2011 involving the United States Army? 2011. The 18th of December. 18th of December, 2011. I will say Extraction of the last uh, standing troops from Iraq. You are correct, my friend. Am I really? Yeah. Did you just guess? I this? promise. I did. I'm not. Well, I mean, I was trying to work out the dates, but yeah. Um, the last yeah. U.S. troops withdraw from Iraq, officially ending the nearly nine-year-long Iraq War. One of the most prominent policy failures in the history of your country. Arguably. There's there's more of those to go around. Yes. Okay, good one. I'm glad I, I finished on a win there. <laughs> Ooh, Susie must have heard us talking. Can I give you one? Can we try and do a, a one back? Okay. On this date in 1892 was the premiere performance of what? 1892. 1892. A premiere performance. Give me some more context for geographical location. Russia. St. Petersburg specifically. The Nutcracker. Yes. Oh. The Nutcracker by Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky premiered on this date in 1892. Look at us, man. All right. Good job. This was not rehearsed, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nicely done. I mean, I guess it is almost Christmas time, and you know, but uh, that actually I'm not taking anything away from you. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I'm not taking anything away from you. It's good uh, work. Good one, Susie. Thank you. Yeah, nice. All right. Okay, so we'll. I guess we'll get back to this next time. Yeah, sounds good. Talk to you soon. Cool. Bye. Talk to you soon, Sean. Bye.